0: Welcome inside the Wheelhouse Podcast. We have the Tom Glavin episode, episode 47, as we are in a new location, Jerry. Uh, Welcome to our world. We're in one of the visiting broadcast booths, the Ox booth, booth two here at T-Mobile Park. Uh, I hope you don't feel intimidated in, in this space.
1: I, I I don't the, the elaborate decor is overwhelming. <laughs> the uh,
0: photo of like a painting of Ty Cobb someplace in the book. Yeah, room. I
1: think we have we have Johnny Evers and then white walls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, hey Jerry, we have uh, we've got some news for the podcast, and we realize that there are a lot of people listening who have been with us since episode one. Uh, but our next recording, which will come early next week as we are recording this in advance of—today's Thursday, right? Yes, Thursday, in advance of Game 1 against the Texas Rangers. Jerry, our next episode, not only will we have it in our normal podcast form, which can be found on all podcast outlets uh, online, but there will be a condensed version to be televised on Root Sports Northwest. This is a new thing, Jerry, and my only question to you is, will you be wearing makeup?
1: I, I will— I will go sans (laughs) making. I will, however, spend a little extra time. After having watched the pregame show or postgame show yesterday, after what was the fastest game in the history of man that we played in San Diego, at least Mariner game, uh, I will not take Felix Hernandez care in picking out my clothes, which apparently is three and a half hours of packing time. But I will take greater care in dressing for, for Tuesday's event just to make sure I'm I'm representing well.
0: Well, as we bring in the maestro, Colin O'Keefe, who's with us each and every episode. Uh, Colin, if you can, tell the good people just a quick format change what, what this will look like. It'll kind of be like a best of when it goes to the TV side, right? We'll do our full version here, and then it'll be trimmed down a little bit for uh, HD.
2: Yep, it'll be on Thursday at seven o'clock next week it'll be a half hour show so you guys will be able to take a look and see all right where was i most interesting in last week's show <laughs> and those are the segments that we'll be pulling and only because i've made this mistake in the past and i was in charge of this in the past the only thing i'll say i love him i love andy to death let's avoid large cable knit sweaters for the oh yeah on Thursday night. The, i think the, the andy cable the knit sweater is amazing it was great it I was, think it, was the,
0: it was the neck of the sweater that really helped make it i mean the fact that the neck went like to the nostrils I think it's part of the issue there. And you're talking about Andy McKay, Mariner's Farm Director, on a Mariner's Social video that was a terrific video. And Andy's sweater is one that he'll never be cold in.
1: I, I love the sweater. It had, first of all, I, I asked Andy where he got the cable knit sweater <laughs> because I wanted one of my own. It brought back memories of 1970s... Hollywood Squares, Charles Nelson Reilly with the 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 pipe sitting in his box. It was it was fantastic. I loved it.
0: Well, you know, since we are talking about our first televised episode coming up next week, I do have to commend Colin O'Keefe because when I think about this podcast, I kind of remove myself from the the dailiness of it when, when we do it. Really, not daily, but once every couple of weeks. I mean, this this began with Colin walking into Kevin Martinez's office and saying, "What if we did a podcast?" with our general manager. And now all of a sudden, we're almost 50 episodes deep, and it'll be on television in a whole region on Root Sports Northwest. So, Colin, I tip my cap to you. Fine
2: work. And after all these episodes, we're still sitting here in an empty radio booth <laughs> <laughs> with me up above, cord draped down below, making right. sure we don't kick anything over. But so far, so good. But, now it's fun, thanks to you guys, and I'm excited for it.
0: Well, Jerry, we've got plenty to talk to here on this episode of The Wheelhouse. The Mariners, come back home. It was, overall, I think it's fair to say it was a good road trip. It feels like it wasn't as good as it was because of how it ended. The Mariners just somehow cannot win at Petco Park in recent years. Uh, But they took three games out of four against the Angels, so an even-steven road trip overall. What did you make your overall impressions of the four games in Anaheim and then the two in San Diego?
1: Well, I I guess it was unrealistic to believe that we're going to win 90% of all of our road games for the entirety of the year. But I think what you're seeing is our we're normalizing a little bit, and we got off to such a great start, and we weren't going to maintain an 800 850 winning percentage for the the entire season, and we also weren't likely to to challenge all-time scoring records. But we're still doing our best to to set records, at least franchise records for the way our offense has played to this point and i think through 25 games having hit more homers than anybody in history a a team in history is is a pretty phenomenal achievement and we were riding so high when we left the the previous road trip through kansas i guess chicago and kansas city and then we hit the flat point with the the sweep at home and went back out and had the great first three games and then the thud the second three games and and I don't think that's going to be abnormal for us as we go through this season. Uh, we're going to implement some younger players as we go. We are going to see some streakiness. Uh, and, and frankly, with as many pitches as we take, we're going to see some days where we pile up some strikeouts. When you have a guy like uh, a Chris Paddock, who I thought was terrific yesterday. But when you have a guy like a paddock who's just hammering the strike zone and not allowing you to breathe, and our hitters, our approach is, is predisposed to taking a lot of close pitches, uh, you have a, a, a fine command guy like that, and, and it can turn into a two-hour game.
0: Side note, Jerry, can you pronounce the last name of the Padres' starting pitcher in game one?
1: I, I thought it was Margushevitz. Uh, <laughs> actually, when you were when you were uh, calling the game, I said, "Oh, that's how you say uh,
0: Margavichus, Nick Margavichus, Margavichus." Uh, you know, blow in the first inning referred to him as, "Well, Nick, a left-hander." <laughs> 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 that's Kangaroo Court in the broadcast booth. If you go first name visiting player that you've never seen before, simply because. His last name is basically like Swahili or something. <laughs> <laughs> this
1: this guy this is guy. doing a great yeah, job. Yeah, this
0: guy. All right. Well, Margavich is. It's a good thing he's in the National League, I guess. When we talk about the Angels series, you know, there's a, there were a ton of home runs, or 14 home runs for the Mariners in that series. And I, I avoid the cliches, Jerry, as much as humanly possible. And this is going to feel like it. But I thought the ninth inning on Sunday was Incredible. I mean, it turned out to be a loss for the Mariners. Uh, they were trailing by uh, what was it, uh, seven runs, going into the ninth inning. You have three outs to go, and most teams would have just, hey, let's get away day. We got a day off tomorrow. Let's get on the bird. Actually, let's get on the bus and drive to San Diego. Let's start the off day. This game's toast. And your ball club hit three home runs. They brought the tying run to the plate with one out to spare. It was a remarkable effort in the ninth inning. And hey, those seven to one games are gonna happen. Happened to World Series champions like 10 times every year. It happened to the Mariners. The difference was the Mariners found a way to get five runs across and make it a ball game.
1: It was awesome to watch. I felt like we hit 14 home runs just in that <laughs> inning. But uh, you know, when when Tommy Murphy hit his, I thought, good for you, Tom Murphy, keep grinding. And and as the the inning kept going along, that's what this team has been so far this season is, is a grinding team that doesn't give up in a bat. And I thought the the ninth inning of a loss was maybe as representative as anything we've seen this year to what this team's about, is don't give up the A.B.s, keep on grinding, and, and we hit bombs. I, I guess that's what was so unusual. In, I mean, we just went two games without hitting a bomb. What, what's going on?
0: Well, and, you know, you talked about on the last podcast how Mitch Haniger seems to come to the plate when – The Mariners kind of need a big hit, need a run, and this belief in clutch hitting. And he demonstrated it that day. He's done it a lot of times, but especially that day.
1: He he always has, really, from the time he joined the Mariners. If you look back over the course of these uh, two plus seasons now with Mitch the number of highlights that we'll rerun uh, with Mitch doing something big in that big moment in the game and sometimes it's a defensive play you know if you'll remember you know the the play over the wall or the play that has now turned into one of our uh, awesome commercials which I love the way the Mariners do commercials but uh, Mitch is always there it seems in crunch time when you need him and uh, uh, that's really Team leaders, the guys that that drive a club, tend to, to be there and elevate their game in those moments, and that's why you remember them. And that's why they're your best players, and Mitch is certainly among them.
0: Offensively, Mariners catchers have been among the best in baseball in terms of the average, the slugging, the home runs. I mean, offensively, in a position where most teams really struggle to get production at the plate, Mariners catchers, both Murphy and, of course, Armand Arvaez, have really produced... How about defensively for Omar? We know the story on Omar coming over from Chicago. We know the work he put in even before spring training. We are about a month into the season. What is the progress that you've seen behind the plate for Omar Narvaez?
1: Well, you could count this for Omar and for Tom, but the – the job that has been done by Tony Arnerich, uh, what Scott was able to do with with Omar in the spring, but mostly all the time that Omar spent on this is, he has he came on as we know as, as maybe rated among the 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 lowest in, in in the American League in regard to pitch framing in 2018. At this point in the season, and, and it's early, and and sometimes the, the the metrics will create some white noise this early in the season, but we do an internal measure, and we feel like about a week ago we got to the point where where the the noise stops, and now it's it's telling information, and we do a game by game assessment of the the. Pitch receiving and, and game calling. And Omar, not is not only has he been above average through the, this point in the season, there are some nights where we count him as being elite. And it, it's really representative of the work he's putting in. And now you'll see it in the public domains. When, when you start to see the, the pitch framing data that's being poured out in the public domains, Omar has gone from near the bottom of the list to, to a much more favorable position. And even in fan grabs, where they qualify, you know, defensive value, uh, both both of our catchers are in the positive, which is kind of fascinating from where we began, uh, particularly in Omar's case, and where we ended up, and then add to that the fact that they're both raking, and, and it adds up to a really valuable part of our team.
0: How do you, or how does... Anyone who is in charge of putting numbers to what they see on the field, especially ones that are more obscure, how do you go about judging game calling? That seems like almost impossible thing to
1: measure. Well, it, it, part of it is because we set up a game plan going in. So, you know, and unlike... Football, you know, I, I guess famously back in the in the early mid 1980s, Bill Walsh would script the first 16 plays for for Joe Montana, and then pass it along to Steve Young, and and now just about any NFL team will, will have something similar. We don't have that hard line of script for what we're going to do, but every one of the hitters on the opposing club, based on which one of our pitchers is pitching, we have a game plan for how we're going to use that pitcher's stuff. And we are then able to go in and take that plan, overlay it with what we actually wind up doing. And you, you can, I guess, extract the noise of poor pitch command. So did we throw the right pitch? Were we calling the right location? So it requires a lot of manpower or, or individual uh, attention to, to get it right. But we do have all of the information we need to determine whether the game was called well. Uh, and how often we were going to the right pitch, how often we were using that pitcher's best stuff to attack that hitter's greatest weakness.
0: So in other words, it sounds like it is far easier for you or any club to analyze their own pitch calling than it is for you to look at a catcher on another team, a possible free agent or a trade target, and decide if what they did
1: was good or not correct there we're left with a little bit of guessing. All we can do in that is is how we would choose to pitch those hitters, and maybe they're doing it a different way. Uh, you know you'll notice now, and you know Omar and Tom both both wear a wristband that give them the ability to reference not a play by play, not sixteen scripted. You know, accounts that they're going to get to, but the, on their wristband lies the information, the scouting information, to how we're going to use our pitcher's stuff. Not what the opponent's doing, but how we're going to use our pitcher's stuff. And you know, to this point in the season, I think both of our catchers have done a great job with it.
0: Felix is coming off a fantastic start in San Diego. His last couple of starts have been really good. He's had a number of fine starts this year going at least six innings. The strikeouts, the swings and misses, Jerry, that we saw even in just the first inning yesterday from Felix are kind of unlike starts that we have seen in the last year or two from Felix. What did you make of Felix yesterday?
1: There, I, I will say I was back here in Seattle. I didn't travel with the club this trip, but watching the first hitter of the game on TV, I, I turned around and I said to Justin Hollander, we were sitting watching it together. I, I looked at him and I went, "Damn!" <laughs> that was my first reaction. Was you know it was a very different look, very aggressive. You know, Felix has been very engaged in what we're doing this year, and I think his stuff has ticked up particularly the way he's using his secondary pitches most notably the way he's using his curveball but as encouraging as anything is the fact that Felix has been more engaged in in a game plan he is—he's game planning with Paul Davis, with our catchers, with our advanced scouting group, which is something that—that that is a bit new for him. And you know, Felix, for so many years, pitched with awesome stuff and the confidence of a Cy Young Award winner, and—and and it worked. So now this is—we've talked about it a lot for the last three plus years. This is Felix's chance to to kind of adjust and adapt to, to his new stuff and and his new approach. And this year, more than we've seen in the past three years, he is really embracing it. And and I will say that I thought his start in Anaheim was good. I thought the I honestly I think he's pitched well each time that he's pitched. Sometimes we're catching him on the on the extra runner he leaves on base, and that's unfortunate. But this outing that he had in San Diego yesterday was the best single outing that I've seen him have since early in the 2016 season, and uh, might have been the single best outing he's had since since I've been with the Mariners. I thought it was awesome.
0: So you bring up the breaking ball. He threw 40% curveball, just over, in fact, in each of his last two starts. And he's used that pitch more in recent years, but he really leaned on it. And that kind of takes us to a bigger point. Right now, Jerry, just over a third of the teams in baseball, 11 of the 30, are throwing under 50% fastball in terms of their whole pitching staff, starters and relievers. The Mariners are among... That eleven. In fact, the Mariners are throwing almost the lowest percentage of fastballs in baseball. Uh, I assume this is not a surprise to you. How much of this was the game plan going into the regular season?
1: You know, we had this as a game plan, and it is—it's a bit of drafting. You know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? We, we, we have among the teams in the league, we have the the lowest average fastball velocity for our starting pitchers in the league, and you know. You, you roll with what you have. It's uh, our pitchers use their fastballs effectively and efficiently. We throw a ton of strikes and we work in positive counts. I think we're we're the best in the league at not walking, uh, not walking opposing hitters. Like,
0: like by far, like a, there's a good margin there. Yeah, good
1: margin. I, and and frankly, that's when when you don't throw hard. That that's part of how you succeed. And and our group has been incredibly durable. You know, we, I think right now we rank second in the league in average innings per game start. So, you know, our guys are going deeper in the game than a lot of other pitchers do. Part of it is because we're more efficient with our pitches, we're throwing strikes. But we don't overexpose the fastballs, and, and that is by design. We, we have pitchers who have exceptional secondary weapons. You know, Marco's got the cutter, the changeup, and the curveball. Uh, Wade LeBlanc, when healthy, has the cutter and the changeup that are both really good pitches for him. Felix has the changeup and the curveball that are both really good pitches for him. And Mike Leak throws the kitchen sink. I mean, you're not gonna see more than two pitches in a row where he's just not backing it up with some kind of change in look. The only pitchers we have that have averaged a better major league velocity with their fastball are Kikuchi and Swanson. Swanson's only started two games, and we're still working into Yusei's use of his secondary weapons, which we think are exceptional. We've just not gotten to the point where he's consistent in repeating them. So we've used a lot of secondary pitches, both because it fits our pitchers well. And in the age of, Increased velocity average fastball velocity in baseball right now is higher than it's ever been and not by a little It's grown by three and a half miles an hour or so over the last four or five years And that's a huge jump. I mean you think about if if the average temperature changes by one degree over a 50-year period I there there'll be marches in downtown (laughs) Seattle you know, the average velocity uh, of, of a major league fastball has grown by uh, three and a half miles an hour thereabouts. It's incredible. And while that has been the case, we as a league, not the Mariners, we as a league throw those fastballs less frequently than we ever have. And in large part, it's because the hitters are bigger, stronger, and have more bat speed than they ever have. So you have to have something to neutralize that. And... I think the way it's being neutralized is by using the secondary weapons, changing speeds, changing planes with your pitches. And then when you do choose to throw the fastball, you will see this in the league a lot. They're elevating the fastball. Elevated fastballs, it could be 88 or it could be 98, but fastballs that are elevated up above the letters are really hard to hit. Because what you're doing is you're adding another three or four miles to the velocity of that fastball in terms of effective velocity. You know, what you. What your mind sees, so it's a it's almost an illusion. So the fewer fastballs we throw as a staff, the more velocity we seem to add when we do choose to throw it, and it is well located. A couple of questions and
0: follow ups to that: When we see a catcher right before a pitch is thrown and start to stand up a little bit, right and put that glove up above that top shelf—the to Yogi Berra or the yes. Jason Barrett? Right. Yes, exactly. A guy like Eric Swanson, for example, who likes to pitch at the top of the zone, does he practice throwing that pitch in a bullpen session at some point where the catcher will actually come up? Or is he doing that specifically in the games?
1: No, he practices it in the bullpen. And, you know, the thing I like best about what Eric Swanson does is that he knows when to elevate. He also has enough, let's call it effective wildness within the strike zone. He doesn't walk people, and and that is historically true of him. But he's going to throw the ball that he's trying to get middle in and it just rides for him. And the ball that he's trying to get middle in may wind up out over the middle of the plate, but it has so much hop at the top of the zone, it's really hard to square that up. Because it's, I, there are a lot of hitters in this league that are somehow peeking, they're looking out of the corner of their eye to see where that catcher's setting up. And if your ball rides and moves is, you know, to the naked eye, Swanee's ball looks straight. But when it's when it's when you look when you look from the batter's perspective and the ball is coming at you and appears to be riding up in the zone, it's really hard to hit. You can't really see that as a viewer on TV, but you get that sensation when you're watching in the box, and that's why he's able to take a 92 or 93 mile an hour fastball and run it by so many bats at the top of the zone because it's playing like it's 96, 97.
0: When you talk about teams throwing fewer and fewer fastballs despite velocity being greater than it ever has been before are we seeing more pitchers and this is across all the baseball are we seeing more pitchers that have the 95 plus who just simply can't command that fastball like they can their slider or a curveball some type of breaking pitch
1: I think you are and partly that is because it takes a good deal of effort to throw that hard so you know for years and years as in scouting or even what we were taught back in the day coming up as pitchers is you want to do it easy. you know I, I guess if I had to look at Zach Grinky or Mariano Rivera are great examples of guys who just did it easy. Tom Glavin whos we're, we're on his episode. We are honoring yeah. him today. Yeah <laughs> So I mean did it really easy and you know, and while Tom Glavin wasn't overpowering and the other two at times have been, the 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 do it easy model isn't really what you see as much in today's game. You see a lot of maximum effort, you know, grit your teeth and let it rip. And there's when you do that, it's hard to be really fine with your command. That's what made a guy like Chris Paddock yesterday so so impressive. Is he's throwing at. A, a good clip. I mean, it's 94, 95, 96 miles an hour, and he's doing it with the precision of like a Rivera or a Greinke, and and he does it easy. There's, that's exceptional. More often than not, when you get a guy who's, you know, grunting and firing it up there in the mid-90s, you're not gonna get great command with that. But the reason why they're able to, to start in the major leagues, as scouts, we used to push those guys to the bullpen all the time. Ah, he's a bullpen guy, because he had imperfect command. Now, the, the starting pitchers don't necessarily have a three or four pitch repertoire. You know, if you remember James Paxton, it's mostly fastball, curveball. And you know, throw an occasional cutter, but it's fastball, curveball. And you know, Vince Velasquez with the Phillies is another example, a guy who really doesn't get too diverse. And, and they do it because the two pitches that they're throwing most frequently are so overwhelming. You know, it's hard to hit 98 with a top-of-the-food-chain breaking ball, and if you just stick with it, it works. And, you know, I I think it's hard to be precise with locating that, and that's maybe what your vision. I think it's spot on. You you don't see as many fine command guys, but you're seeing strikes. Pitchers, starting pitchers in today's game throw strikes. They just don't do it to as fine a location as maybe pitchers that we watched growing up that were a little more fine-tuned to Maddox or Glavin, etc.
0: Ever since Yusei Kikuchi signed with the Mariners, Jerry, we have been talking about this upcoming day where he has his first shortened start. Uh, I suppose that that day will be a little different for Yusei than any other in his professional baseball career, but how do you assess kind of what you've seen this uh, first few times through his uh, first sample size with the Mariners before he goes just uh, an inning or two?
1: You know, we will limit it to an inning, 25 or so pitches or tomorrow. And and uh, and obviously we're, we're doing that, as we've said throughout, to try to limit his innings over the course of the long season. And we do think that this is going – he's averaged five plus six innings per start. And by cutting back once every fifth or sixth start, we're able to uh, limit those innings and keep him – about the same target number as what he had last year in the MPB. And and if that's a good start point for him, we, we, we think it's appropriate. It also gives us some innings to play with toward the end of the year, and, and we want him to pitch through the full season. What we've seen to this point is – in each of Yusei's starts, I think his stuff is getting better with each start. I know we're seeing more velocity start to pick up with each start, multiple 96s in his last outing. And what we're seeing is the better drive to his glove side. You know, And, and for the pitchers, the starting pitchers, you know, Yusei doesn't really have a changeup that he uses at game time. He works on it in the bullpen. It's fastball, curveball, slider. He does have three pitches. We're still trying to get to the point of consistency with the curveball and the slider as he adjusts to the, to the Major League Baseball rather than the, the ball they use in the MPB, which we talked about. It's just a little tackier. But what we're getting now with, with you say is we're getting more fastball drive to his glove side, you know, into a right-hander away from a lefty. And when you start seeing a pitcher command that pitch, that's when his delivery get, is in sync. Because to throw that pitch and to command it well, you've got to strike on your delivery just about perfectly. And in his last outing, we started to see him really command that glove side fastball well. That excited me because I think that once we get to that point, it's the the curveball and the slider will really start to click off of that fastball. And here over the the last four days and for the next six days, we will have the opportunity to really – work and refine some of the things that, that you say he's doing down in the bullpen because he's only going to throw one inning over the course of that period of time, which I think is a great time for he and Paul Davis and the catchers to get to work.
0: Well, this does open up an opportunity for someone to pitch in back of Kikuchi tomorrow after his one inning. You've talked here on the podcast before about it being Justice Sheffield. We saw Justice did this similar situation in his last outing in Tacoma where he came in after an opener. Uh, first of all, how did how did that go for Justice?
1: Uh it went well. You know, I thought the it, like we're talking about with you say, uh, Justice had an incredible spring training. I mean, as good a spring training as you can have. It was impressive from the stuff to his his composure and looked every bit not a guy who's trying to make the team as your fifth starter, but as a guy who's going to make the all-star team. It was that good. <laughs> Uh, you know, and then he went out in his, his first couple of starts in Tacoma really struggled, struggled with the strike zone, struggled to, to maintain that same approach. And here his last two outings, he's getting better and better. Uh, I think he was putting a lot of pressure on himself to, to, to justify coming back to the big leagues and, and to impress a, a new team at, at the early stages. But uh, his last outing, we saw better fastball command. We saw more attack, just a higher strike percentage. And we saw more consistency in locating his breaking ball. But, you know, we told Justice when we left spring training that this would be uh, his time. And it's, uh, this is the first day we're going uh, back to the one-inning start for, for Yusei. This is what we promised Justice when the season began. And, and you know, he's going to get his opportunity tomorrow. I thought he handled very well coming in out of the bullpen. But he got a chance to do that a little bit last September with the Yankees. And, uh, you know, it's th- this is a little different in that we're going to ask him to now assume a starter's role once he's in the game in the second. We kept him to about three innings because he just pitched, uh, you know, four days ago. So we kept him to three innings in his, in his previous outing with the idea that we're we hope to get three, four, and, you know, optimistically five. Uh, in back of you say but you know let's uh, let's put the bar at, at hopefully we can get three and anything on top of that is gravy but really curious to see how he handles himself in a new environment and, uh, and hoping he doesn't put pressure on himself to to try to wow everybody in one day and just do things that he's capable of doing because that's plenty good
2: speaking of that is there ever even just a sense of relief getting to the major league level I remember back in the day not that long ago, but Ronis Elias, he would sometimes go down to AAA and struggle there more than he would at the major league level. And he'd come up, and whether it was a sense of release, heightened focus, but what's that like for a pitcher to come up? And, you know, maybe for Justice, it could be a sense of relief to say, all right, this is where I want to be. There's, I,
1: I think there would be. You know, I, I remember back, I was in AAA, I played in the Pacific Coast League uh, in 1992. And at that time, Albuquerque was a Dodgers affiliate, they were loaded. And, uh, Pedro Astacio was pitching for the the Albuquerque Dukes at the time, and and having a terrible year. I, it's, I mean, something, in they were like six and a half, seven ERA in Albuquerque, and they called him up to the Dodgers, and he proceeded to throw, I think, ten straight quality starts, and was rolling out, you know, uh, uh, an ERA something short of two, and. I, I thought that man. It must be that much easier to pitch in the National <laughs> League than it is to pitch in the PCL. But, it's the altitude. Yeah, I, I do think there is something to uh, a sense of of relief. I do think there's something too. If you know, major league hitters, the, sh- the strike zone's a little easier here to manage. There's, for for lack of a better way to put it, these are the best umpires in the world. These are the best hitters in the world. These are the best mounds in the world. It's the facilities, the the personnel, and the the the, the surroundings are are conducive to success if you allow yourself to and you now like any other place you just have to control your breathing if you control your breathing and and you go out there and approach it the same way you did in high school the same way you did in A-ball, a ball it'll translate the same way It's it it's all about how you control your person
0: along those lines i have no authority to make this assessment whatsoever which is why we have you is one of justices greatest strengths and also one of the greatest obstacles for justice just his overall intensity on the mound I mean we saw him in spring training but the bell hadn't rung yet I mean what is his demeanor like in terms of him being a nose breather versus a mouth breather when he's pitching
1: he is an extremely aggressive guy on the mound and and it's a I think over time he's he's learning how to manage that uh, manage himself on the mound incredibly competitive uh almost looks like a, like an uncaged lion uh, on the mound. And I think that is one of his great strengths. And, and on the days where he's struggling, it's probably one of his great weaknesses because he starts moving a little too fast. And, you know, I, the, if I had a, a wish for him, it's that he finds his perfect medium, you know, where, where he's able to maintain that high competitive, you know, I'm going to get you and still manage the emotion so that it doesn't send him moving too fast. Cause you know, the, the pitcher's greatest enemy is is the speed of his body. You know, if 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 your body or your mind are moving too quickly uh, to keep up with with your arm and the pitch execution, you're in real trouble at this level. You know, at, there are you can go to the minor league levels and you can get by with stuff that's poorly located, or you you have a better chance of getting hitters to chase to make up for the lack in the in command. But if you let yourself get moving too quickly here, it tends to catch up with you.
0: Now that we're in year two of the opener era, is there a name for the pitcher to fondle the opener? Y- Yarbrough. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely done. Okay, so we need to we need to do uh, we need to figure this out a little bit, right?
1: This is a, you have the authority to just make this up on the fly.
0: The wheelhouse does have that kind of authority, right Colin? I think so. All right, we'll give it some thought by the next time we speak. Well, you know, we'll save it for the big show, West Northwest. We'll we'll I'll I'll take I'll take some ideas from around the booth. All right, I was hoping you would have an idea, Jerry, but I've already stumped you. We haven't even gotten to that part of the show. <laughs> hey, when we uh, let's talk some minor leagues and first of all, you have some exciting news to share about a really a fan favorite, Mike Cameron. Tell us.
1: Uh, t- tomorrow will be the first day, the maiden voyage of Mike Cameron's uh, post-playing career. As, as you know, Mike retired uh, about seven, eight years ago as a player and has uh, stayed home, had had his kids in school, uh, watched his son Daz get drafted in the first round by the, the Houston Astros and now in AAA with the Detroit Tigers after a big trade but uh mike and i spent some time together earlier this season and and uh he is going to hop on board with us and he's going to go out in our system and and work for the remainder of this year with our outfielders and base runners and and uh work with refining some of our outfield defense uh the way we run the bases and even just focus the how our players prepare mike had an awesome career and and uh, had had an awesome career that started with a really raw tool set and and a hard fought battle with how to refine those tools and turn it into on-field performance. And you know, if you let him talk about you know that journey, it's it's pretty awesome to hear. And and I think he has a lot to offer our young players. And and um, the the Mike has a really easy way with people. And uh, he'll be out in Arkansas tomorrow working with Jake Fraley and Kyle Lewis and Dom Thompson Williams and and uh, among others. And he will. And at least two trips through each affiliate in our system spend some time at the big league level with us and we've given him some kind of highlight players that we'd like him to spend extra time with uh, and he's really looking forward to it I, I'm, I'm excited for him to get started because i think he's going to love it and uh, and i know our group is going to respond really well to him
0: i'm sure he'll teach them how to hit four home runs in a game as well that's my goal <laughs> how did this marriage come about this courting process with mike
1: you know in in my first year here, when I got here in 2015, uh, one of the first things I did was was reached out to a lot of the former Mariner players and talked to them about ways that we could kind of re-engage them in, in what we do. And one of the people that I spoke to at that time was Mike and, and invited him to come join us in spring training 2016 as a guest instructor. And he, from a scheduling perspective, couldn't do it uh, that year. He had something going on at home and, and couldn't join. But then uh, over the course of these last couple of years, as he's watched Daz move through the, the minor league level and, and as his kids are starting to get out of school uh, and, and he has a little bit more time on his hands, he reached out to me and, and asked if there was a way to, to get involved a little more. So then we, we flew in and he flew in and, and met us for a road trip. We spent a road trip in Chicago, talked about the different ways that, it, that I thought he could help. He spent some time with our big league staff and, and team. And I just love spending time with the guy. Really think he has a ton to offer. And, you know, if, if our guys are able to, to come within 25% of the, the career that he had, we're in great shape.
0: Well, maybe one of those guys he'll be speaking with, Jared Kelnick. Uh, Kelnick, of course, with West Virginia, a little bit of a slow start. Uh, looks like he has started to catch fire. What have you made so far of this uh, first month for him?
1: I I really couldn't be more excited, like you said, it was a slow start for Jared and and uh, simply put, when you were as hot as he was in the spring training, it would be impossible to believe that you could maintain that for a long period of time. And you know it's similar to what we saw with Vogie, you know I mean Vogie was scorching hot for for about ten days. Sooner or later, you're going to take a couple of offers, and, and it evens out. And I think that's what happened to Jared the first four or five days of the season. And since that time, he has been on fire. I think has has rolled out some insane numbers over the course of his last 10 or 12 games. And hitting the ball hard, I think the if I had one thing to point to with Jared, his, his strikeout rate is artificially high. He probably has as good a strike zone judgment as anyone we have in our system. And it, it, like we're seeing here in Seattle, when you are driving as many counts, deep into counts as many times as Jared is, it's a, he's winding up with, with a handful of backward Ks. But it's a bat for average. He's hitting the ball high impact. I think he had a, a double and a homer erased due to rain. Uh, so the numbers would be more magnificent, uh, here in these last 10 or 12 days, but his, uh, his, his burst on the scene is not surprising to us. And you now we're, we're kind of hopeful that this is just scratching the surface of what he's capable of. Cause it's pretty awesome.
0: You'd have to imagine. So, Hey, one of his teammates, uh, a local kid out of Vancouver, Washington, uh, Damon Cassetta Stubbs, uh, Five no hit innings the other night is what if it's very early, but what have you made so far of his early season?
1: You know, Damon, it, part of his season, Damon was a, a, a guy that we identified last year. Like you said, I think he's from Vancouver, Washington, 19 years old. Uh, we drafted him out of high school last year. We identified him early in the draft as a guy we would like to take a run at after the 10th round in the draft. And the, the way we do that uh, is we identify players we think are signable within a specific dollar range. And now the way the first 10 rounds of the draft work are you are working from a pool of, of money. Each team get, has a pool, a signing pool that it is up to them how to distribute. And each slot from the 10th round to the 40th, 11th round to the 40th is a $100,000 slot. And if we have, if we save any money with our signings inside the top 10 rounds, we can take that money and contribute it toward a player that we pick after the 10th round. And each year we'll try to identify one player who we think is is interesting enough or has a high enough upside that we would overpay him in those rounds. And last year that was Damon Cassetta-Stubbs. And, Cassetta Stubbs. and, and we, we carved out some money in the top 10 rounds, and we were able to, to push that his way and get him on board. Really like the player. He's, uh, he's 19 years old. We intended for him to start an extended spring just to get his feet under him and, and uh, build some innings before he went out. And, and we also could control the innings that way for a teenager – but thought he'd go out and join Everett once their season began. And lo and behold, we got into a little bit of a pitching crunch, partly because of the struggles we've had on the mound in Tacoma. Just sent some echoes through the system. And we needed somebody to step in, and we sent Damon to Modesto. And he, and he threw in Modesto, and our pitching people happened to be there that day with Andy McKay. And, and you know immediately Andy said to me, I don't know why we would leave this kid in, in Peoria. He's through he's, he's great all spring. He's throwing great now. And we sent him on to West Virginia. He threw five shutout innings last night, and he's going to stay in the rotation moving forward because we think he's ready for it. And, you know, it's, uh, sometimes the, the, the pleasant surprise is the, is the nicest. And we don't have uh, a lot of, let's call it, widely known pitching prospects. Damon is going to sneak up on some people. He's a he's a real guy. He's up to 96 miles an hour with his fastball. Uh, average velocity last night was 93, 94. And he's got a breaking ball he throws for strikes. And that's an awfully good foundation to start with as a 19-year-old in that league.
0: Are you ready, Jerry? Are you ready?
1: Let me brace myself.
0: Now, this is inspired, this trivia question is inspired, uh, well, obviously by me. Uh, second of all, <laughs> you
1: are an inspiration. Thank okay. you, Jerry.
0: Thank you. Finally. What minute are we at in the minute marker in this episode? to finally hear that. Hey, there were a couple of times in San Diego when Felix was pitching where I said to myself, it's happening. This is immaculate, baby. It's going to happen right now. In fact, fourth inning, fifth inning, strike one, strike two, strike three, gone. Strike one, strike two, second batter. I get in the talk back to JJ in the truck. Who knows my love affair? And I said, JJ, if if he punches this ticket, it's happening right now. And he did, and it was like—I mean, blow was already giving me space because it was going to be Game Seven of the World Series. Went strike one to the third batter, and then ball one, and everything was crushed. But I'm telling you, he flirted with an immaculate inning. I mean, a couple of times he began like the first four innings, I think, with a strikeout. So you know where I'm going with this. We got an immaculate inning question for you, Jerry. Oh,
1: yeah, I knew it was coming.
0: Tell me, Jerry, the only pitcher in the history of baseball to throw an immaculate inning in both the American League and the National League.
1: Oh, what kind of question is this? This is, this is painful to me. It's a fantastic
2: question. Oh, is what my it is. Gosh. is it a good pitcher? It is, is a really a, good pitcher. An
1: immaculate inning. In both leagues.
0: For those who haven't ever heard me talk about baseball and don't know what the Immaculate Inning
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> Please give us the, yeah, okay. the, the so definition. This is, this
0: is a a inning where a pitcher throws nine pitches, all strikes, and records three outs.
1: An Immaculate Inning in both leagues. Yeah, I,
0: This is a real guy. This is a Hall of Fame pitcher.
1: I'm going to go with Pedro Martinez. That's incorrect.
0: But that's a great guess because he is a real guy and a Hall of Famer. Nolan Ryan is the answer.
1: Wow. One, I, with,
0: one with your Mets and the other with the Angels. I,
1: I have to say that as much as I love Nolan Ryan, and there, there are a few you know, people that I admire more, not exactly a, a guy that was always efficient with his pitches. I mean, he, he was most famous for, like, the 160, 180 pitch complete games and, you know, 15 strikeout, no hitter. Why are you disrespecting Nolan <laughs> yeah. Ryan so I love here?
0: Nolan this Ryan. Is, I mean, this is blasphemy. As a former pitcher, you didn't even –
1: I mean, it didn't dawn on I think
0: we're I think we're done here. I know. I know. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, there are only a handful of pitchers to have thrown multiple immaculate innings, as you can imagine. Like Scherzer has done it. Randy's done it. Uh, You know, Sandy Koufax, most all-time. This is common knowledge with three. <laughs>
1: this is common knowledge. Three is the max, <laughs> yeah, huh? Three is yeah. the max,
0: yeah. It's only happened once in franchise history for the Mariners. That was Felix. Uh, Edwin Diaz did throw one in Springs Raining uh, two years ago. I was on the call for that, and it was the greatest call I've ever had. Uh, regular season or spring training?
2: Zach Roscopp one third of the way to the all time record.
1: There, there it is. Nailed it. So, there it
0: is. Thanks for chiming in. <laughs> That's true.
1: Another one. The pitch efficiency might need to improve to, to revisit that, but we'll, we'll hopefully get there.
0: Uh, hey, you know, Randy's another guy, right? I mean, he was the master of the 145 pitch complete early.
1: Game. Early, you know, it ran, The late version of Randy, you know, in Diamondbacks the, version was was. Both overpowering and really limited to walks. He was much more efficient with his pitches. It's a it, it, there were two noticeably different careers for Rainey Johnson. One was awesome, and one was like otherworldly. <laughs> he had a run where he was as, as good as anybody that ever pitched.
0: Yeah, no, he's incredible. Uh, but Nolan Ryan is the answer, and I win again. So uh, we're gonna get. I to feel it. like you have a decided
1: advantage. Us, so.
0: <laughs> oh, I absolutely do. Yeah. Which makes me so mad when either, A, you know the question, or I mess the question up. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Chris uh, chimes in from Bozeman. And uh, this is interesting, Jerry. This kind of made its way through uh, Twitter the other day. Uh, Mariners lead all minor league teams in total pitcher strikeouts, which I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, What has changed in the franchise approach? How do you explain uh, the early success with the strikeout?
1: Uh, We do. We do lead the – and I will say this, that we we are leading – Minor league baseball and strikeouts. We were all. We also have a number of guys in our system who have seen increases in their velocity, some significantly so. Uh, guys like L.J. Newsom, Reggie McLean. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on through our system. There, there are a ton of them, and we've seen as a result, you know, better, crisper stuff. Similarly, we have really revamped our approach to pitching, and and this is, uh, you know, on the heels of of shifting. What we're doing in our pitching program with guys like Brian DeLunas, the addition of Paul Davis, we have really talked about a vertical strike zone uh, rather than previously what we had discussed as a horizontal strike zone. And, uh, and our pitchers now pitch to that vertical zone in a different way. And you know, what I'm proudest of, especially at the West Virginia, Modesto, and Arkansas levels, is that we're doing it without walking people. Our, our walk rates at those three levels are really low and we're striking out a ton of guys. Tacoma we're we're really battling the walk. We're giving up way too many free passes. But system-wide, I think it's a it's an increase in velocity, it's an increase in overall stuff, and we're doing a great job of taking our our pitchers, you know, we 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 call them dials, turning their dials to to use to create pitch usage patterns that enhance their ability to get outs. And you know, that's not how player development always worked. You know, it, it was just throwing some some bats and balls out there and let's you know <laughs> let's see if your physical talent will take you there and will help you improve your delivery but now we're doing you know we're using technologies in ways to teach our players about spin rate about approaching or attacking different parts of the strike zone and we have more information even at the minor league level and advanced scouting to to go out and give them advantage versus the hitters they're facing as well.
2: It's almost every night where you check at MILB Mariners and it's another ridiculous pitching line. I mean, even I was putting together a reel of, I mean, honestly, guy, I don't know much about Ryan Inman. he, fans 10 over 5.1 hit and huge credit to craig manning and jimmy hartley for hooking us up with the scouting video program bat so we can help show fans some of the video of these guys pitching but you can see with him the tunneling work that comes into play where he's peppering i think his arm side fastball and he's throwing a breaking ball right out of that same tunnel and he's just racking up the case i mean it's not spending some gaudy breaking ball into the dirt over and over again pumping up strikeouts it's it's actually pitching
1: it's pitching, it's command, and I think that among those in our system that embody it as much as anybody right now are Logan Gilbert. Is Logan pitches vertically? He has command. He has real weapons and and a, and a sense for how to use them. L.J. Newsom has really taken a step forward in terms of his pitch, yeah, just his pitch velocity. And he's always had the command and the feel to use his stuff. And then Reggie McLean. I, I can't say enough about Reggie McLean. He's the the, the advances he's made at, at a, this stage in his career uh, to to be now sitting in the mid-90s and he's always had a good breaking ball and he's always throwing the ball over the plate So now you, you take a guy who had a below average major league fastball and you put him in the above average category and see what you can do now is a lot more to work with uh
0: one final question along the line of minor league pitching uh, sam carlson looked like he was making some progress in spring training and terms Of throwing off the mound seemed like it would be in the not so far off uh, future. Is there a medical update on Sam with Tommy John?
1: Yeah, so we, we believe Sam will be back and it'll be closer toward late summer. Uh, and the great likelihood is you'll see him at a half season league. You know, Sam's only thrown three innings professionally, so and he's still just 20 years old. We don't want to push him too fast. It's uh, obviously. Our hope for his future is far more important than anything he's going to do piling up innings this July and August. So we do anticipate seeing him after the All-Star break. Probably uh, going to do that down in Peoria or in Everett uh, based on what we see. But the, the, first, the first time you'll see Sam out at a full season affiliate will likely be in 2020.
0: Well, the homestand begins tonight for the Mariners. Mariners fanny pack night and college night tomorrow. First 10,000 fans take home that neon fanny pack. Uh, Jerry, I'd have to think as a general manager, when you trade for a player who is a success, that's great. But when you trade for a player who then gets a bobblehead night, like Mitch Hanniger is getting his five-tool bobblehead night, I mean, that's when you know you made a great deal.
1: I think you know that. Two things jump to me. Uh, One, I would prefer it to be a fanny pack. Yeah. <laughs> I, forgot. Yeah, just, I forgot. I forgot your love affair with yeah. the fanny pack. As as an immaculate ending. And this as is to your you, immaculate ending. Yeah, I, I am a fan of the fanny pack. <laughs> Actually, we were in Japan. We were in Tokyo, and my wife and I are walking to go get a meal, and I and I had I, I had a fanny pack. No, come on. I Had a fanny pack like over my shoulder. So it's it's mostly like the Seinfeld version of the you know it's a, it's like a man bag, but. <laughs> i have it I, it's european i have it striped strapped over my shoulder and, and we walked past billy bean and he said are you carrying a fanny pack <laughs> <laughs> uh it's a and, and I, it's european um that, that's number one is is i prefer it to be a fanny pack number two is i have looked at the bobblehead i've seen it on the the board here at t-mobile i am convinced that they somehow mixed up the picture of Mitch Hanniger with a picture of Charlie Furbush. <laughs> 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 the, the face on the now Mitch is, is a good-looking five-tool guy. Sure, yeah. the, the bobblehead bears a striking resemblance to Charlie Furbush. I, this, this two things.
0: Honest mistake. Honest mistake. Could happen to anybody. Uh, I will. I have not noticed that, but I will take a closer look. Because you also,
1: know what? The one thing you're not going to confuse with with Charlie Furbush five tools. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he, had, he had one very good tool. And, Frisbee slider. Slider. <laughs> yeah. uh, and also, our our final our first Little League day of the year is on Sunday and the Cubs come to town. Joe Madden and company Tuesday and Wednesday for a quick two-game interleague series to wrap up the homestand. So a lot of good stuff coming your way here at T-Mobile Park. Jerry, the next time I see you, we'll be wearing makeup. One of us will be. One of us. Is <laughs> Jerry, thanks as always for the time. All right, good.